This week on Crossing the Lane Lines. Um, and, and so the, the, the silencing, what these media reports were doing is they were silencing the, the, his racism over and over again and silencing the well-documented historical racism of U.S. swimming culture. And the culture that after summer 2020 that like USA Swimming and all of these people were saying, you know, we're listening, we're reading, we're doing better. But at the moment where they needed to demonstrate that they were doing better and that they had been listening and thinking that they didn't do that. Many individuals in the swimming world condemn Olympian Cleet Keller's active participation in the insurrection at our nation's capital on January 6th. However, USA Swimming's tepid response to a former member's actions that many considered seditious were met with disillusionment and anger within the black swim community. After last summer's protests concerning the lynching of George Floyd and a country divided, one wonders if USA Swimming is really serious about addressing issues in-house. We'll speak to historian, former D1 swimmer, and elite-level swim coach, Dr. Johanna Mellis, about Keller, the media, mental health, and whether or not USA Swimming has a racism problem. Stay tuned. In San Francisco, this is Najee Ali, and you're listening to Crossing the Lane Lines. When former Olympian Klee Keller was identified amongst the mob that overran the Capitol, killing five and wounding over 100 Capitol police, USA Swimming put out a statement that said, quote, it strongly condemns the unlawful actions, close quote, and that Keller's actions in no way represent the values or mission of USA Swimming. Many in the media, including Swimming World, the Washington Post, and Sports Illustrated sought out white coaches and swimmers that knew Keller to explain away his actions, citing that he was a great swimmer who lost his way after his career was over, was temporarily unhoused before pulling his life back together, only to be caught up in right-wing extremist politics. Those that were interviewed about Keller seemed to frame his actions as if they were a one-off occurrence, dealing with the issues of mental health, and ignored the fact that his apparently well-known conservative views were sliding to an extreme right point of view. Our guest today co-authored an article entitled, Cleek Keller is not an aberration. USA Swimming has a racism problem. In the article, she writes, quote, In their repeated absence of discussing race, white members of the swimming community and media reports exemplify how white privilege, whiteness, and white supremacy operate. They silence the racism of Keller's actions and ignore how his white supremacy is part and parcel of USA's swimming culture rather than an aberration. Close quote. Joining us to talk further about not only the apologists of Cleek Keller, but also the issue of racism in USA swimming is Dr. Johanna Mellis. She is an assistant professor of world history at Ursinus College based in Philadelphia. She is a former D1 swimmer, elite level swim coach, and co-host a podcast entitled The End of Sport. Dr. Johanna Mellis, welcome to Crossing the Lane Lines. Thank you so much for having me today, Najee. I've just been so unbelievably impressed at the, with the work that you're doing with the guests that you've been having on, so I am truly honored to be here with you today. Thank you so much for your kind words. 
Dr. Mellis, before we dive into the subject at hand, I'm wondering if you could give our listeners a background story on your swim career. When did you first start and how did you progress to be a D1 swimmer? Absolutely. And I I really appreciate this question because I think it helps to frame the discussion a bit, at least just from my perspective. And I just want to be very clear to listeners who may not know me that I am a uh, cis white female swimmer. Um, And so sort of with a lot of the privilege that comes with sort of having these identities, and and I'm going to talk about this in my response. Um, Now, I was someone that I always loved the water. I think like many swimmers, many uh, people who work in the aquatics world just really grew up with a love of the water. And um, according to like family lore, uh, when I was three or four years old, I, 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 we were at the beach in Virginia and I crawl, I tried to crawl into the water um, and I, I didn't know how to swim. Um, and so that's sort of like family lore. And then um, where I grew up outside of Richmond, Virginia in a suburb, predominantly white suburb. And um, we lived in a neighborhood that had a neighborhood pool that was about a 10 minute walk away that had a pool that had a swim team every summer. Um, and so actually, um, if listeners are familiar with the episode with Dr. Jeff Wiltho, where he talks about sort of how the creation of uh, the suburbanization of the U.S. and the creation of swimming pools like outside of city centers and, and suburbs for white families, that was very much my experience. Um, and so I grew up uh, with my family. Like we, we all swam on summer league every summer and all of my friends, my kind of whole world revolved around that. And then I think when I was about eight years old, um, at the end of the summer, I was like bawling because uh, summer swim team was over and a coach on our team had suggested that maybe we check out the local club team, which was, again, only about a 10 or 15 minute drive away. So just very, very close um, just in terms of proximity. And um, so when I was eight, I started I started swimming year round um, at, at Poseidon Swim Club. It still exists today. And um, as, as you and I think as many listeners know, um, club swimming is really, really expensive and it's really, really time consuming. And I wasn't aware of that when I grew up. But like I think back and I mean, my dad was an ER doctor and my mom was a stay at home mom for the first half of my childhood. So two things that really helped um, us be able to do club swimming because money really was not it wasn't as much of an issue as it is for so many other people who would like to swim. And of course my mom could like take us to swim meets and drive us around to practice and stuff like that. Um, and so I, I swam club uh, for about 10 years and had always wanted to swim D1 and then swam at a pretty sort of low level D1 school. Um, the swimming program doesn't exist anymore at the college of Charleston, but that's where I swam in the 2000s. Um, and it was it was like a, a lifelong goal of mine, uh, but I received a small a swimming scholarship to go there. Um, and so, yeah, so that's how I got to, to D1 Swimming. I want to go back to the quote I read in the introduction and then get more clarification from you. Quote, in the repeated absence of discussing race, white members of the swimming community and media reports exemplify how white privilege, whiteness and white supremacy operate. They silence the racism of Keller's actions and ignore how his white supremacy is part and parcel of U.S. swimming culture rather than an aberration, close quote. Can you talk in more detail concerning this quote? Absolutely. Um, and and I, that, this is a, from a piece that I co-wrote with uh, my colleague and fellow swimmer um, who is a swimming historian. His name is uh, Dr. Dr. Uh, Matt Hodler. And um, just as sort of some background, you know, when when we were seeing all of the repeated sort of media attempts to 
frame his story, as you already said, as one that was about sort of his mental health and, and falling in hard times and that sort of thing. We were just like constantly messaging each other, like they're, they're missing the point. They're missing this huge thing over and over again. Um, and, and so the kind of analysis that we developed very much built on top of what um, another piece that Dave Zirin, who you had on your show already, and he co-wrote uh, for The Nation with Dr. Jules Boykoff, and they framed their analysis in terms of, um, you know, Klee Keller's white supremacy in the frame of the International Olympic Committee and the Olympic Games. And so our analysis very much uh, supplements that to kind of look at how um, the media, the, the ways that the white members, the white members of the swimming community who were interviewed that you mentioned earlier, sort of their remarks that were repeated in the press and the press narrative of what, of what uh, sort of how Khalid Gallagher got there, you know, got to the January 6th white supremacist terrorist attacks, um, was not, had, you know, had, that it had nothing to do with his whiteness, that it had nothing to do with racism or white supremacy, that it was all about these like individual problems of him having mental health issues and, you know, sort of nudging at the, you know, also implying that the lack of institutional and financial support for retired athletes was an issue. And, and, and that is an issue. And so with mental health is certainly these are both valid things to be concerned about, but they were just not talking about the fact that the reason why he was there in the first place, the reason why all of those white terrorists were there were because they did not believe the verified, the certified election results. Um, they, they wanted to harm and in some cases like kill the, our, our elected officials who were trying to certify the election results. And they did not, they wanted to negate the fact that it was black and brown political organizing efforts and black and brown voters who helped us win, helped Biden win the election, right? So really trying to overturn this entire process and overturn these, these voting efforts, these organizing efforts and these, these voting efforts of our black and brown voters. Um, so at its heart, I mean, to even like think about joining those efforts, you know, you have to like think all these things through. But these were the analysis that were totally left out of the media reports and the quotes that were cited from the white members of the swimming community. Um, and, and so the, the, the silencing, what these media reports were doing is they were silencing the, 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 his racism over and over again and silencing the well-documented historical racism of U.S. swimming culture and the culture that after summer 2020 that like USA Swimming and all of these people were saying, you know, we're listening, we're reading, we're doing better. But at the moment where they needed to demonstrate that they were doing better and that they have been listening and thinking that they didn't do that. Um, and, and so that's when we say that sort of the silencing ignores how his white supremacy is part of our culture, that it's not like a sideline or something to be ignored, that it's actually foundational to our own filming culture. Um, this is what was missing from the repeated uh, media reports about it. You mentioned in one of your podcast episodes that modern swimming seems to have a whiteness problem. First off, talk about what you mean by modern swimming. And secondly, what came before it that makes you separate the two? This is such an excellent question. And like many of your other ones, really requires me to kind of clarify what I mean, which is really good. It's something like, oh, gosh, I really got to make sure I get it right. Um, so, so, and, and I, and again, I want to say, like, I'm, I'm, I'm building on the, the, the excellent scholarship that Dr. Kevin Dawson and Jeff Wilson and Matt Hodler, all these people have done. Um, and so, when, when I think of sort of modern swimming, um, how do I say? So, the, when, when modern sports were developed, 
in the 18 and 1900s, and when I say modern, I mean when there were concerted, like, real efforts to organize and categorize and implement certain standards of how to do sports and sort of who to include and who not to include. These were efforts that originated in, in Imperial Britain and then spread from Britain thereafter. And this is something that I teach about in my sport history courses that originated in, in, in sort of colonial Britain and then spread across the world due to the British Empire and, and other countries in Europe and in the U.S. kind of picking up on it. And so they essentially were trying to organize sport in a way that allowed certain people to exist in these communities, allowed people, certain people to compete and excluded others, and also set up specific rules. So, for example, within swimming, there's a whole process by which freestyle and the stroke of freestyle was created. Um, and there's really excellent scholarship showing that it was like the cross stroke was an indigenous stroke, but then was sort of taken over and, and culturally appropriated by white swimmers. And, and then sort of how people created rules to dictate, like, this is, you know, a race is going to be this long, you know, we're going to have records, we're going to quantify these records, and we're going to have people compete in a way that is quantifiable so that a winner can be established. And then when someone is a winner, you know, there are all these ideas about, like, national superiority. So, for example, the Olympic Games was created as a way for, for people from di different nations to compete. And then whoever wins is seen as being representative of, like, the greatness of their nation. Um, and, and so modern swimming emerged within this context where we have, for example, um, the International Swimming Federation was created in the 20th century. And then we have, you know, the creation of the NCAA and USA Swimming as organizations that would organize swimming in certain ways and essentially monitor it and surveil it and kind of control the people who are swimming. And, and this is different from what was happening before and also what has happened since in the sense that, you know, people swim and interact in the water in all kinds of ways, right? They do it for recreation, they do it for fun, and they do it in ways that don't kind of meet these codified kind of regulations. Um, and, then, you know, people have been swimming for centuries, and this is what your, your prior guests have shown on your podcast, is that swimming has people have been swimming for centuries, they've been doing it. Um, to survive if they live near coastal waters. They've been doing it to trade and feed their families and, and, and do these sorts of things. And they've been doing it for recreational reasons too. Um, and so all of those kind of um, ways of interacting in and through the water, you know, I consider those to sort of be n not necessarily part of the modern form of swimming because I think of modern as, as modern swimming that's organized by governing bodies and that is sort of people swim for reasons to win and to compete and to race within kind of a Western sense of what it means to compete and race, if that makes sense. And so that is kind of how I, how I separate the two. Um, again, there's a lot of overlap between the two, um, certainly, but that's kind of how I differentiate is this creation of modern rules and a modern structure. Let me play devil's advocate here for a minute. There's no disputing that swimming is viewed as a white sport. But the truth is that the current women's 100-meter gold medal winner is black. The best women's water polo goalie is black. And several other Olympians, both past and present, Janai Kerr, Mohamed Adder, Leah Neal, and Cullen Jones, to say nothing of the possible Olympic qualifiers like Giles Smith and Reese Whitley, are black. Isn't it fair to say that USA Swimming is making progress in being more inclusive? Uh, another another excellent question, and, and I guess my thing is that I question how much we can credit these efforts to USA Swimming. And I, I say this because 
and I mean, again, I think I think some of your prior guests and you yourself can can speak more to this because you all have done the research um, more than I have. But I really think the credit for making swimming more inclusive really seems to go to the black community. I mean, it goes mm-hmm. to all of these individuals and their coaches and their families and their communities for making space for them to compete and to thrive and to making people, making black and brown people feel as if they, they, that they should um, be part, that they're welcomed, they sh- that they have a lot to give to, to the swimming community. And, and I think that so, so for example, like a lot of people point to USA Swimming's Make a Splash Foundation, which um, I think, yeah, has been in existence since 2004, if I'm looking at my notes right. But it's it's really interesting the whole make a splash thing because if you look at the website and I actually think uh, someone should do research on like a historical analysis of this, um, it seems that the sort of dual goals of the Make a Splash Foundation are one to save lives and two to build champions, and and I kind of see the second goal is a bit self-serving and like of course they do and I, and I get like saving lives like should be the primary goal knowing the statistics knowing our his, the the white supremacy of swimming kind of what our, and by our, I mean, like, my white ancestors did to make bodies of water a site of trauma and, like, as a site to, to sort of harm people. Um, but the whole building champions thing, that, that's about making sure that USA Swimming has Olympians to compete at the Olympic Games. And maybe that's a very cynical take. But that's my take on it, whereas black swimmers, black water polo players, black coaches, like, they have been at the forefront of efforts to make something more inclusive for decades that go way far beyond 2004. Um, and and, and it, like I know, for example, um, Colin Jones has, has really helped um, USA Swimming with Make a Splash. I don't mean to, to denigrate those efforts at all or to say that those efforts are not valid. They are. But I, I go back to something that Dr. Christina Fryer said on this episode that you referenced um, that, she, that she and others have talked about that, that USA Swimming uses black swimmers and other black aquatics athletes to sort of show that they're being inclusive and really using them as like labor to be more inclusive. Um, and I think sort of first and foremost, USA Swimming, it's a white institution through and through in terms of you look at the leadership and also in terms of who it is geared to help. It is geared to help people like me. Um, and, and I guess I kind of question whether USA Swimming can like reform itself to become anti-racist or whether we need to like dissolve USA Swimming and create something new. I mean, I don't know how much it's a reformable organization or not. And, and Najee, you may have different thoughts on that or sort of whether it's able to do that. But I guess that's kind of why. Like I question whether it's USA Swimming that's making progress or whether it's the people within the community that are fighting to make it more inclusive and USA Swimming sort of begrudgingly going along with it and like bumbling along the way over and over and over again. Um, so that's, that's, that's kind of my thoughts on the issue. In his seminal work, Undercurrents of Power, Aquatic Culture in the Black Diaspora, Author and scholar Dr. Kevin Dawson researched how blacks ruled the waterways from 1440 to the 1880s. Generation after generation, even during the slave trade, were proficient swimmers, surfers, canoe pilots, and builders, as well as deep sea divers. But then it all began to dramatically shift in the early 20th century to where we are today, with disproportionate drowning rates and lack of access for black people. Dr. Mellis, can you talk about how water has become a source of trauma 
for the black community, especially in more recent history. Absolutely, and I and I, I yeah, I'm so glad that doc, that you've had Dr. Dr. Kevin Dawson on because his work is just it's just truly phenomenal, and and it's such it's historical, but it's also like has such a contemporary relevance. And in terms of you know more recent incidences, I mean it, it's ongoing. Um, like uh, for example, the the example of Emmett Till is is one that that tends to come to mind and is a really really apt one in terms of 1955. But like, you know, even just as in, perhaps just as importantly, the, the you know, the, the trauma of, of what have what and I and I say again, sort of my white ancestors did to him, it's ongoing. So, you know, his body was lynched and thrown in the Tallahatchie River in Mississippi in 1955. And then it took until 2007 for a sign to finally be put up to commemorate like the spot in the water where he was found. So 52 years, and then that sign has been repeatedly stolen. It's been shot at. I mean, if you Google it, there are pictures of this poor sign being riddled with bullets. And it just shows how people are, like, the, the trauma is ongoing. People are actively trying to kill even the commemorative efforts, which is just totally, like, mind-boggling. Like, I mean, a, a sign is a sign, but, but it just goes to show how important those commemorative efforts are because people are still fighting them. And then sort of two more brief examples, and, and again, Dr. Fryer talks about this. this is, I, I have no credit for this, um, but in, she points out how in 2015 there was this incident in Texas um, where um, there was a 14-year-old black girl and her friends who were at this pool, and a white woman told them to, quote, go back to the Section 8 homes, which is absolutely like a super racist remark. I mean, no, no question about that. And then the, the cops were called, and then a white cop, thrust the girl onto the ground and knelt on her back and unholstered her gun. I mean, the, the things that we're seeing still happen in 2021 20, again and again and again. Um, so that's one more recent incident. And then even with respect to the, the, our analysis of Clay Keller, just something that's been kind of turning around in my mind over and over is, you know, our argument in that piece is that the sports media and, and, and the white members of the swimming community, you know, they, they continue to ignore this issue of race and, and, our, and like the racism of the community with respect to Keller's actions and really making what his whiteness and our white identity seem to be the kind of neutral, the default, and seeing it as something that's invisible, whereas blackness is not invisible, right? It's the opposite. And, and the thing is, is that swimming commentators and sports journalists who, who comment and write about swimming, they make constant efforts to Simone Manuel's blackness and how she's the first black athlete. And they do this with all black swimmers, black water polo players, et cetera. But they're not referring to white swimmers and their whiteness. They're not saying white male swimmer Michael Phelps or white female swimmer Kate Dudeledecki, and not to pick on them, but just their recognizable names. And they're not saying that. So there again, it's just kind of reinforcing the fact that white bodies, they are neutral and they belong to the point where we don't need to, we don't need to reference our identity, but yet black bodies, because they don't belong, we need to point out the fact that they are black and that they don't belong. And to me, this seems like it's just kind of more white supremacy in action coming straight from the commentators that we listen to and that we watch and that we pay attention to. Um, and so it seems to me that this would only kind of enhance the trauma and make it ongoing. I was listening to your podcast episode entitled Cleek Keller, Sports, Media, and the Whiteness Problem in Swimming. In a discussion, you and your colleagues spoke about how the commentators at the Rio Olympics didn't think that Simone Manuel 
would win the gold in 100-meter freestyle. But then she ended up tying Penny Alexiak of Canada. Now, they had to change course and declare her the winner, but they kept referencing her as the first black woman to win gold. They didn't speak about her merit or how hard she worked to get to that point. Unlike Alexiak, who wasn't, whose race wasn't uh, even mentioned. My question for you is, what will it take for us to get to the point that swimmers like Simone, Cullen, Maritza, and so on are just great swimmers and not great black swimmers? Uh, yeah, I mean, we have so far to go. I mean, and I think part the part of the issue, I think, is, is to, to go back to my answer for the last question is that you know, I don't think most sports media and, and I, you know, on, the, on my podcast, we, we criticize sports media constantly because their coverage tends to be really awful and very discriminatory. These people are oftentimes not trained to talk about people different from them in inappropriate ways. And, and, many, and there, there are sports journalists who are amazing and who do do this, but they often they tend to not be um, permanently employed by like ESPN or Sports Illustrated, they tend to be freelance, which is another whole issue. Um, and, and so I think I think part of the issue is that the sports commentators and journalists, I think they think that they are doing a good thing by highlighting the fact that Simone Manuel is the first black swimmer and et cetera, et cetera. I, I think they think that they are recognizing what a feat, like her feats, and that they're doing a good thing to show the diversity. I don't think they even understand their own whiteness as commentators and understand how they're actively working to make her seem as if she doesn't belong. So I, that, I think, I just think we have so much further to go. Um, and, and I think even, you know, with USA Swimming's, you know, the whole fiasco with last summer that Noel Singleton very rightly pointed out um, and, you know, just repeated issues with, with Cleet Keller and even, you know, the, you know the, the the attacks in Atlanta, just their really, you know, bland, res- bland responses, not even bland, just totally missing the mark in terms of like they don't they're not showing that they're listening. They're not showing that they're actively thinking about how to they're not actively thinking about how their actions might actually impact the minoritized members of the swimming communities. They're only thinking about how to protect the whiteness. And that really, for me, became clear with this whole Cleet Keller thing, is that they are firmly committed to maintaining the whiteness of the structure, and that's why they didn't want to point it out. And that's why the white members of the swimming community who were quoted on these articles, they were not committed to anything other than making it seem as if his actions were an aberration, because if they didn't, then they would have to look in the mirror and think about themselves. Um, so this is sort of a long way of saying, you know, I just think we unfortunately have so long to go until we can actually talk about some Manuel, Cleet Keller, Ashley Johnson, any of these other people as anything other as anything other than just being athletes, because I, I think we just have a ways to go for the communities and, and commentators to actually think through how they should be talking about swimmers. I want to circle back to the apologist of Cleet Keller and his slide into right-wing extremist politics. Many stated that his difficulty adjusting to life after being an Olympic medalist, his divorce, being denied the right to see his kids, and homelessness led to a struggle of mental health issues. These issues, in turn, led him to participate in the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th. Now, there are a lot of people who battle mental health issues, but they're not racist. There's a lot of people who battle mental health issues and don't storm the Capitol. 
Can you talk about how Keller's former coaches, teammates, and the media have used mental health to excuse his behavior? Absolutely. This is something that I, I feel so strongly about. And, and again, what was really like what motivated my Matt Hodler and I to write this piece is that it's totally, it's a total misuse of, of the issue of mental health. And it is an excuse, is what you said. Because, and this is not to say that mental health doesn't matter. Right? Anyone, you know, who who knows me, and I'm sure knows you, Najee knows that like we care about mental health, and that people do need to get the appropriate help that they need, and it is something that we should be taking seriously. But just because someone has mental health issues does not make them a racist, right? It's not a straight line. Um, and it's it, the issue is that it's individualizing the systemic issue of racism, and it's making it seem as if, well, he was on hard times and he was struggling financially, and therefore, because of him being socioeconomically and you know unstable, not unstable, but you know not have um, socioeconomic stability, that that is what prompted him to slide into right wing political extremism. And this came out also in the, in the initial reports about the white uh, supremacist terrorist attackers on January 6th is that, well, most of them were lower class. But then when all the research came out, it was like, no, they weren't. There was a woman who flew there with her private plane who brought people there. Like there were plenty of people who were middle, upper middle and even upper class that were there. So the socioeconomic issue doesn't fly. Um, it, 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 but, but people don't want to talk about that that many people were held such white supremacist beliefs that they wanted to go there. And this is certainly the case with Clay Keller. Um, and so the default to say that, you know, oh, he was struggling with mental health, that that's the reason why that's a way to make it his problem, his individual problem, and make it an aberration so that we're not making those important connections that we need to be making, that we should be making after summer, you know, after all the history but I guess, you know, after the whole, like, we're listening, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're paying attention, we're reading of summer 2020, just it goes, goes to show how, how seemingly meaningless a lot of that was. And, you know, maybe it wasn't meaningless, but they need to actually show that. They need to actually prove to us, prove to the black and brown community that they were doing more than that. Um, and I, it's, it's such an easy excuse. And, and again, I, you know, mental health is very important. And, for example, I recently watched a mental health documentary within sports called A Heart of Gold. And, you know, I, I was pretty conflicted while watching it because I, I definitely think, you know, elite athletes, no doubt that mental health issues are a big struggle for them. And I totally understand why. And there is a, la a lot of lack of institutional and financial support, which, which can absolutely add to mental health stressors. But again, that's individualizing a problem and divorcing it from the systemic discrimination. And instead of saying, you know, we need these structures to provide more financial support, we need these structures to be actively anti-racist, to not be transphobic, to, you know, to not be sexist. It's saying that, you know, oh, we really need to just be providing mental health counseling to everybody. And that's a very individual thing, and it's not going to solve all of these issues. So it just, it kind of feels like a cheap scapegoat that doesn't do does a total disservice to mental health and then also obviously does a disservice to these real systemic issues that need to be addressed. USA Swimming put out a statement denouncing the attempted coup on January 6th. However, they ended the issue there. Now in 1968 at the Mexico City Games, 200 meter sprinters John Carlos and Tommy Smith raised their fist on the winner's podium in a black power salute. The silver medalist, Peter Norman from Australia, wore a button in support of the two men. 
Immediately following this peaceful protest, USA IOC Chairman Avery Brundridge threw both men out of the Olympic Village and subsequently stripped them of their medals. Yet there has been no repercussions for Keller and his actions, which bordered on sedition. USA Swimming stated that he is not currently a member of, U of USA Swimming, and therefore they seem to wash their hands of the issue. But here is what their code of conduct specifically states. Number 304.2 states, I'm quoting now, any member, former member, or prospective member of USA Swimming is subject to jurisdiction of the Board of Review. Any member, former member, or prospective member of USA Swimming may be denied membership, censured, placed on probation, suspended for a definite or indefinite period of time with or without terms of probation, fined, or expelled from USA Swimming, close quote. It seems that USA Swimming is claiming that their hands are tied in the statement that they made about Keller's actions, but their own code of conduct makes it clear that they can take action against present and former members. Dr. Mellis, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, they definitely could have banned them. I mean, I, I'm really glad that you read out that full um, kind of code because it shows that indeed there's precedent for banning people, right? Because that code wouldn't have been created if there wasn't a prior reason to ban people. Um, and they absolutely should do that. And, and they should, he shouldn't be allowed. I mean, he, they, he could be banned from so many things. He, I, he shouldn't be allowed on a pool deck. That's what I think anyways, because if, if you think, how do I say, if you demonstrate your actions the way he did, that you truly believe that black and brown people's votes don't matter, what do you think about whether they should belong in the pool, right? I guess it's not that much of a stretch to, to kind of extrapolate and think, okay, what, what else does he think? What else is he willing to do to demonstrate his beliefs that he feels very strongly about? So he definitely needs to be banned from USA Swimming. And this is a total, I mean, like you said, washing their hands of the issue. This is exactly what they're trying to do is say, oh, well, you know, he's not a member, so therefore we can't do anything. And that is such an easy way out. Honestly, I'm, I can't say I'm surprised. I mean, one of the other issues that I'm really kind of, that I've talked about a lot on the podcast is the issue of um, sexual abuse and sexual harassment. And, and swimming has one of, USA Swimming has one of the most, the worst track records in terms of all of the club organizations in the U.S. I mean, um, investigator, this investigative reporter that we interviewed, Scott Reed, who um, investigated the Larry Nasser uh, scandal within USA Gymnastics, he told us on the podcast that USA Swimming has an even worse, like, quantifiable track record than USA Gymnastics, which is horrifying, and they are so loathed to ban anybody so i'm not at all and over like proven instances of like grooming and sexual abuse so i i can't say i'm surprised at all and again i'm not trying to conflate the two issues because i think like sexual abuse and harassment and racism they come from the same center of cis whites uh cis white the cis white patriarchy but they are two different issues um so i'm not trying to conflate the issues or say that they're equal because they're not um, but I guess it is all to say I'm, I'm not surprised. They don't actually want to confront this issue. And if they were to ban him, I think they would have to explain why they're doing that. And I don't think they want to go there. And I think your, your, your um, characterization as they just want to wash their hands of it, I think that's absolutely true. Um, and I think they're showing that over and over and over again. 
And we are going to have to leave it there. Our guest today has been Professor Johanna Mellis, Assistant Professor of World History at Ursinus College in Philadelphia. She is a former D1 swimmer, former elite level swim coach, and co-hosts a podcast called The End of Sport. And we will link to her podcast. Dr. Johanna Mellis, we wish you and your family health and safety during this difficult time in our country. And thank you again so much for joining us today on Crossing the Lane Lines. Thank you so much, Nazi. This was wonderful. And I wish you and your family so much health as well. On April 20th, a Minneapolis jury found former policeman Derek Chauvin guilty on all counts of the lynching of George Floyd. After the verdict was read, there was jubilation on the streets of Minneapolis, across the nation, and around the world. Many of my friends have been texting me, expressing their relief at the verdict, and hope for something better. And I understand their relief and hope. But I also feel a sense of profound sadness. Ahmed Avery, Philando Castile, Brianna Taylor, Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, Oscar Grant, Tyshawn Lee, Alex Nieto, Sandra Bland, Laquan McDonald, Dante Wright, and so many more are no longer with us. They are not with us because this country failed to hold police accountable. They are not with us because so many in this country believe that a police officer has the right to shoot first and ask questions later. They are not with us because in this country, to a large extent, black and brown bodies don't matter. So, while we here at the Black Swim Collective will breathe a sigh of relief that, for once, justice was on our side. We are not fooled into thinking that this country has turned a corner with respect to police accountability. We know that systemic and structural racism are not in their final stages. And we know that any time one of us leaves our homes and encounters law enforcement, it could be our last. Why? Because we continue to love a country that refuses to love us back. So rest well, Big Floyd. Your family received justice for your untimely death, and we are truly happy that they have. But the struggle for justice for those black and brown sisters and brothers named above, and so many more, continues. Amen. You've been listening to Crossing the Lane Lines, which is produced by the Black Swim Collective at our studios in San Francisco, California. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on Spotify, Anchor, or wherever you receive your podcast. From all of us here, we thank you so much for your support. And remember, no lives matter until Black Lives Matter. In San Francisco, this is Najee Ali for Crossing the Lane Lines. 
signing off. Coming up on Crossing the Lane Lines. In 2013, a group of women who were attending the Black Scuba Divers Association's annual summit got together to discuss the lack of representation of African-American women in the diving world, marine sciences, oceanographic studies, and scientific diving. What was born from this conversation was the creation of the most comprehensive program challenging the narrative of blacks in aquatics, and in particular, black girls and women in diving. We'll speak to three, two, one. We'll speak to Dr. Nevada Winrow, the co-founder of Black Girls Dive Foundation, about the origins, mission, and the success of this amazing organization. All that and more coming up. Stay tuned.